Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we want to come to you, Lord, with fresh ears today. We're so thankful that in your goodness, Lord, you've made it possible for us to know you. You've spoken. Lord, you've given men and women down through the ages, Lord, insight into who you are. And that's been packed into this book for us. And Lord, I pray that as we understand it, as we try to get to grips with what your challenge is to us, Lord, that our hearts will be responsive to you. And Lord, that you will not allow us to remain unchanged. But, Lord, that the power of the Spirit be at work in us as a church and as a community to be a people, Lord God, who are on mission with you. Lord, listening to the voice of your Spirit, following the leading of your Son. And, Lord God, empowered by your grace, Lord, to do your will in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been working through the book of Philippians. We started a few weeks back. And um, this is an extraordinary book because of, as I've been reminding you each week, just that that dual note or the two aspects that's been going on in here of, on the one hand, Paul's amazing, incredible joy, his happiness in God, and the fact that it's coming from, underpinned by, fueled by his total selfless devotion to Jesus and his desire to live for the name of Christ in the earth. And so we're coming today to a little section where Paul's turning his eyes towards the church and wanting to impart to them some words of instruction. And so it really comes, you know, he could be in this room with us right now, telling us these same instructions, telling us these same um, sort of exhortations or the same mandate. And really it comes down to this. What is it that we're called to be and do in the world that we live in? We're in the heart of the capital city of one of the the greatest cities on earth, and we planted a church here for a reason, and we are a community being formed here on purpose, with God's purpose in heart and mind. What is it that we're called to? What's our role here? What's our mission in the world? And really, what are the dangers that would stop that as well as what's in the background here? I think there's two. I believe that there are two great forces that would make the church ineffective. One of them is... The power of opposition, and we're conscious all the time that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a particularly popular thing. Um, the message that we believe and communicate has never been particularly popular. Christians have always experienced pushback. They've always experienced stuff as you know, from mocking all the way through to outright uh, persecution and so on. And none of that's new, but that's one of the great reasons why that can make the church ineffective. And the other, of course, is exact opposite. The power of seduction in the world that we live in. We probably live in one of the most seductive cities in terms of the fact that everything is on offer to you here. You can step out these doors and do whatever fills your mind or your desires to 
to pursue. And that is a, a dangerous and powerful force to erode and cut away at what the church is and is called to be. And in face of these two seemingly opposite, but really these two forces that are working in tandem, the enemy's two ways of trying to take out the church and render it ineffective, the church tends to retreat into one of two reactions. Um, One is total withdrawal from the world. This can be as extreme as the kind of monastic approach that you know, men and women of God through the centuries have thought to themselves, if I, want to be, if I want to live radically for Jesus and I want to have a heart that's entirely devoted to him, I want to be pure to him, and these are all wonderful desires that are in people's hearts and minds. They've come to the conclusion that what they need to do is pull away from the world and not be entangled in it. And so they, to, to a great extreme, they find themselves in monasteries and nunneries and places where you're cut off from the world. But it's not just people who are caught up in those kinds of ways of thinking who have a tendency to withdraw. Christians withdraw all the time when we segregate our our belief, our faith, the things that we do here on a Sunday and the ways that we gather together as a community during the week from engagement with the city. So when we pull away from media and politics and business and the arts and culture and all these things and see a disconnect between what's happening out there and what's happening in here and in our hearts, then we are, we are basically reacting through withdrawal. We're putting a wall around our faith and, and, and blocking it off from the world around us. But of course, the other reaction that Christians have is one of total assimilation, where eventually there's no distinction between you and the people around you, and the church becomes like a chameleon, blends into the environment, only reflects what is being said in the world around, only echoes back the values and the cultural priorities and these kinds of things. And it leaves us wondering, well, what is God's way? How can we live in a city like this where there is... There's, there's outright hostility to what we believe and yet not retreat into withdrawal or just assimilate and become like everyone else. You see these, kind of, these two reactions, by the way, in the way, just as a picture for you of how this works, the way different immigrant populations uh, behave when they are uh, found in a new city. Some immigrant populations prefer to retreat into an enclave where you, have, you can go down certain streets in London and you will see shop after shop and restaurant after restaurant of a particular ethnic group or, or a particular uh, nationality. And you can indulge in the, the cuisine and you'll hear the language all around you. And that's one way. That's kind of a picture of the withdrawal way of retreating into a kind of a walled city of people who are like-minded and that are not engaging with the world around you. It's like the monastic withdrawal approach. Other people groups, when they move to cities, and the Chinese are famous for this, disperse and sort of, as much as possible, try to be as integrated into the society around them. And that's a picture of assimilation. But what we're looking at here, when we see Paul's heart, mentality, and desire for the church, what we're called to, what is it that he's, he's urging us to do as Christians living in this world? This is a question we've got to wrestle with. And part of the answer comes through right at the beginning of the passage. And it's a little bit obscured. And you have to go to the commentators to understand what they tell us is actually being said here. But at the beginning where it says, only let your manner of life be worthy. What the the commentators who are familiar with the original languages and the Greek, they tell us, you can see a footnote on the bottom of the page there, that it's probably better translated like this. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Because Paul uses a really weird word right at the start of this section. It's a word that 
has to do with your citizenship. And it's, it has its roots in the Greek way of thinking. The Greeks practically invented the idea of the city as a state with its, with its rights and responsibilities and with your sense of allegiance to the city. You know, these ancient cities of Greece like Sparta and Athens, they all had their own armies and their own politics and parliaments and their own social structures and their own businesses and trade routes and all these kinds of things. And when he uses this word, behave as citizens... Paul is trying to evoke in your mind this understanding that, Christian, you are a citizen of a city. He doesn't mean Philippi. He definitely doesn't mean London. He's trying to evoke in our hearts the understanding that we are citizens of God's city, of heaven. You can put it like that. And so he's also calling then on the whole of Old Testament tradition, history, and prophecy. Well, if you know anything of the Old Testament, you'll know that a lot of what happened in the Old Testament centered around the city of Jerusalem. It gained this notoriety, the jewel of Israel, the jewel of the whole world, and it still commands that kind of allegiance. And the prophecies in the Old Testament were of people gathering to Jerusalem like a light set on a hill. Where all nations and tribes and tongues would one day stream in and worship God together in this one city that would be a kind of beacon in the world. And of course, aside from the sheer impracticality of that, the Bible then shows us that that whole picture of the city was a picture of God's kingdom coming down to earth. And it ends with the story of Jerusalem, or the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Zion, coming down from earth from heaven to earth, and then growing so that it fills the whole earth. Do you know this, the story of the Bible, how it ends? So when Paul says this, I want you to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. He is saying something profoundly important and countercultural. He's saying that he wants you to act like a citizen of Zion whilst you're living in the city that you're in which means radical engagement with the city we're in. It means radical interaction with and passionate generosity towards the city we're in because we're reflecting the values and the passions of God's kingdom and of heaven. And Paul himself embodied this, didn't he? If you've been tracking with us through the first part of this chapter, the whole section has been about his own selfless devotion to Jesus in order that he can further the gospel. He's sitting in a prison cell. A sign of his total commitment and non... His his total desire not to give in to the powers around him, whether opposition or seduction, but to be radical for Jesus. And so he doesn't want to withdraw from the cities he's in, and neither does he want to assimilate, but rather he stands out at this radical man who you think, rather than being exiled into, into total obscurity, he's there in Rome, in the capital, influencing the emperor's palace because the 9,000 palace guards of the Praetorian Guard know about Jesus because of Paul. And so he, he in himself embodies for us what it is that we're called to do. To stand up as Christians in the world, knowing what we believe and uncompromising in it, but with an outward face engaged with the world we're in, and particularly speaking to you as Londoners, engaged with the city that you're in in London. God's heart is for London. His passion is to see this city turned around. 
And he has given us power as the church to have an extraordinary impact upon it. Now, I want to show you then a few things that come to me out of this passage. I want to speak to you about the mandate, how it is that we're called to impact the city we're in, the challenge, why it's so difficult, and then bring it around to the solution, how we can walk out of here different today, how we can walk out as people who are going to change the world. So let's begin with the mandate. When Paul starts this new paragraph, he starts with this little word, only. Only, he says, let your manner of life be worthy. And it's the kind of word you can ignore, but you've got to understand that what he's just been saying in the previous verses has been, I might die or I might live. I'm not really sure what's going to happen to me. And when somebody says that kind of thing, they grab your attention because the next words they're going to say are important. If I said to you as I left the building, I think I might die tomorrow, I'm not quite sure. Only, and then dot, 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 you'd be like, what? What, Andrew? What are you going to say? And that's what Paul's doing. He says, only. This is the one thing I want you to, be, to take away with you, he's saying, in light of the fact that I may never see you again. In light of the fact that my death is possibly around the corner, that I might be put to death for the gospel. Only, he says. And then he starts to spill out his passion for the church in Philippi. What is it then that he wants us to do and to embody as God's people in the city we're in? And three things jump out from the passage. The unity, bravery, and adversity. Here's the first one. He's calling us to unity. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or I'm absent, or if I die, Just reminding them one more time. In case you haven't got it, guys, I might die. He says, I might hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? Now, most Christians I've met have always, most Christians I meet have a passion at some level for the unity of God's church. Usually what we mean by that is unity in a very public way in terms of denominations and structures and the church in the worldwide sense. I remember a few years ago, I was traveling in Malaysia with with my wife, this before we had kids, and we took a long taxi drive from one city to another city, and it it was quite a distance. And so I was sat in the front with the Indian taxi driver who was Indian Catholic by background. So we began naturally to engage about faith. I'm a Protestant, he's a Catholic. We're trying to tease out some of the similarities, some of the differences. And one of the things he said to me was he was beginning to mourn the brokenness of the church in a worldwide sense. The Catholics, the, the word Catholic means universal. It's kind of a, a, a claim to being the one true church. And he said, before the Reformation happened, before the Protestants broke away, it was like one perfect, beautiful glass. And then since the Reformation happened, the church was shattered into hundreds and thousands of pieces. Speaking of all the denominations and the different groups who claimed to believe this and believe that. And there's a part of me that resonates with what he's saying. There's a, something of a tragedy when you look at the church worldwide and see the brokenness of, of, of our fellowship that we don't enjoy hanging out with different types of Christians and so on. But when Paul's talking here to these believers in Philippi about being firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I've got to tell you, I don't think he has in mind at all the global worldwide scene of Christianity or even just at a city level that the churches, you know, do shared events or whatever it is that churches do to display unity together. He's talking about something much, much deeper. 
the nitty-gritty of day-to-day life where you and I, the person sat next to you or the people in your radius in this room right now are the people that you are journeying with, meeting up with, enjoying life with and expressing unity with in a profound and deep level. Now, it's obvious, I think, that Paul's calling to mind a picture of the Roman military here. You probably remember from your school textbooks how the Roman phalanx would attack a certain small number of men, a unit of men, with their shields interlocked so that you couldn't penetrate the wall of soldiers. And they'd have the inexperienced guys at the front, the slightly more experienced guys in the middle row, and the veterans at the back obviously want to keep those guys alive. And so they, they send the sheep to the front. But these guys had interlocked shields and spears over the top and spear swords through the middle. And it was like a single unit of death coming towards you on the battlefield. So when Paul says here that I, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel... He has in mind this picture of a battle unit going into the, into the fray. And it's not the casual way that Christians interact with one another with sort of politeness and, and superficiality. There is something of hearts being bound together in a profound way here. Something of the experience of not being alone. I think Christians who are alone are probably the most, in the most dangerous place as believers. Over the years, I've seen time and time again when Christians isolate themselves from the church fellowship and they, the attendance at church and the commitment to the church family begins to drop and, and wane and it starts to become non-attendance and then over time, their faith becomes something weaker, shrivels and eventually often has disappeared altogether. I've seen this story play out enough times to know that Paul's passionate concern and our concern should be that no person is left behind, that no one finds himself outside the fellowship of the church. Because the opposite is also true. That as you find your your life more deeply entwined with the lives of others in the church of Jesus, you become more fruitful. You become more effective. You're, You're set on fire. Your passion for Jesus begins to grow. Your love for him your desire to serve him, your godliness grows, your holiness increases as people start helping shape you and speaking words into your life that change you and change the way you think and the way you act and you become more like Jesus. What does this look like in day to day? Well, it means at the very minimum that we can't just be people who brush shoulders in meetings when you come here on a Sunday but rather that your life has to be knitted in with the lives of others, in, even in a moment-by-moment, day-by-day way. Praying together, serving together, doing mission together, loving each other, eating together. This is the vision that I have for what we want to be and do here in London. And I think in terms of trying to do church in London, it's a pretty radical concept. Because more often than not, churches in London have been characterized by masses traveling into be a crowd and then dispersing into anonymity for the rest of the week. And our heart, our beating heart, is that we seek to build a church that's, that somehow resembles what Paul's describing here, side by side for the gospel. And I just want to say one more thing on this, by the way. One invariable rule that I found is that you only get out what you put in when it comes to church and community and family. 
That if you're the kind of person who sits on the side and says, well, no one says hello to me. And then you go home and feel a bit sorry for yourself. The reality is that you cannot experience the depth of life and community unless you're willing to be on the front foot, be the first person to move towards the church, move towards family and express unity with others, with others to be the initiator. So he tells them, I want you to be united. Then he says, I want you to be brave. Verse 28, he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This church had loads of reasons to be afraid. Paul was in prison, and the gospel is dynamite. Whenever you represent Jesus, there's going to be people who hate what you are and what you stand for. It's just part of being a Christian. It's not that we whine or feel victimized. It's just the reality, the gospel message, the message we believe about Jesus, that he's Lord of the universe, that he's going to come back to judge the living and the dead, and that he calls all people to repent and to believe in him. That's pretty offensive stuff. It kind of gets under people's skin. And so the Philippian church had reason to be nervous when, they, when they, they said that they were Christians in a world that doesn't like Christianity. So when Paul's saying to them, I don't want you to be afraid, not being frightened, think about this. He, he's got in mind the mission, doesn't he? The whole thing is about the mission of the church. But why is he particularly concerned about fear and its effect on us? Are you a person who's afraid? Do you feel nervous about sharing your faith? Do you feel nervous about professing that you're a Christian? I think part of the, the answer to the question why it's a concern to Paul is that it just fear changes the way we behave, doesn't it? We pull back, we retreat, we do the whole withdrawal thing or the assimilation thing because we either want to protect ourselves or we're just desperate to be liked. And all of us feel these tendencies, either to retreat from where we can't be hurt or to just be so blended into the world around us because we want people to love us and to like us. That's natural. It's human. It's part of your hard wiring. You're a creature built for love and community. It's natural. And so fear changes the way we act. It causes us to withdraw, to change our convictions. But there's something else going on here. I don't think Paul's only talking about their behavior being changed. He's talking about how fear impacts the world around us or, or doesn't impact the world around us. Because he says here, not being frightened in anything, and this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What does he mean? Well, I think what Paul's saying is that when you're afraid, you go through life and you profess that you believe in Jesus, the Savior, and we've been singing about him, who died on the cross for you, rose from the dead so that he would defeat death and raise all his people up at the end to live with him for eternity. And yet you go through life afraid to share that that's the reality you believe. Your actions or your, your temperament or your behavior denies the gospel that you profess. You're saying by your fear that I don't think Jesus is Lord or that I don't think that I'm secure in his grip, that I don't think that I'm safe for all eternity. So what I mean is that it's not that we only communicate the gospel through words, the content that we're communicating to people. Do you understand that we also communicate what we believe 
through non-verbal aspects of communication. People looking at us and seeing whether you're a person who's full of joy, whether you're a person who's experiencing peace on a day-to-day basis, and whether you genuinely have confidence and courage in the things that you profess about your faith. This is why Paul's saying, listen, when you're courageous, this is a clear sign to everyone else around you that the message you preach is true. And when you hide your faith, you are in effect denying it. Then he talks to us about suffering or adversity. He says, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He wants us to be totally united, one mind, one heart. He wants us to be totally courageous. And now he also says, and listen, friends, if you want to be true to the gospel, I'm sorry to break it to you, but there's going to be, you're going to suffer for Jesus. Now, I'm interested, really, in the way he puts it here. He says, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And I think what Paul's saying here is a distinction. There's a distinction between private faith and faith that is on public. Because you can be someone who only believes, but no one else around you ever knows about the fact that you believe. Or you can be someone who not only believes, but also suffers because your faith becomes public, it becomes known. I remember some years ago, I was, um, when I was a teenager, there were two guys in the church who were in their late 20s, I think, at the time, maybe around 30. And... Um, one of them, called Andrew, was apparently an incredible electric, electric guitarist, but I only ever saw him just playing, you know, strumming along on a Sunday, just playing your average Christian worship songs, you know. He wasn't about to shred up the stage with his guitar. But, um, but also, he, he never displayed his talent. No one ever really could tell that he was a decent guitarist. I mean, I, I could have been as good as him for all anyone knows, and that's laughable. But he, another friend of, of his, a guy called Rob, told me one day, you know, do you know Andrew's an incredible guitarist? He said, I walked in on him one day when he was practicing in his room at university and I was met by the most incredible sounds as he riffed his way up and down the fretboard and all these scales and arpeggios and everything. I was amazed by his talent. And he said, as soon as he realized I was in the room, he stopped playing. And there in that was something of the tragedy of someone who, in private it's off the charts, talented and gifted and able, but in public, wasn't putting it on display. Now, another story that kind of relates to this. I have a relative who he may or may not be in this room at this moment, who once, um, some years ago, bought himself a bass guitar and um, I think probably picked it up once or twice to learn to see how he could play this thing. But we never saw him play, never really, um, didn't want to show off, I suppose. And um, we, we uh, asked him, well, why is it you never practice to play the bass? And he said, well, in my head, I'm, I'm incredibly, I'm like world class as a bassist. <laughs> but when I pick it up, I don't want to be disillusioned from that. <laughs> now, that's maybe a picture here of what, you know, the reality is that just because you think you're something in your head, if you can't do it in public, then maybe that's not true of you at all. And I think what's going on here is something like that for Paul when he talks to Christians. He says, it's been granted to you to suffer that you should not only believe in him, in other words, that it's an internal, private, 
This is my, my faith. This is what I believe and stand by. But also suffer for his sake. That you will, it will naturally lead to the consequences of when you go public with your faith. Because some amount of suffering, I'm afraid, is part and parcel of the gospel. If you are going to be uncompromising for Jesus, if you're going to stand up for the things that you think are true, you think and know are true, if you're going to let your mouth declare what your heart believes, at some point you will hit a wall in terms of people's reception and it will even get painful for you. I think this is why when Jesus, just before he talks about us being salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, because that's how they treated the prophets who went before you. I think what Jesus is helping us to see is that when a person experiences pushback because of their faith, whether it's just a little bit of rejection or some mockery or outright anger or worse, and you're willing to endure those things, do you know those things become a, a mark of genuineness of your faith? That it's been granted to you that not only should you believe, but also suffer. Because the faith that was private, internal, has now gone public, and in a sense been confirmed by the reaction that you've had from others. I'm not sure that a Christian who's unwilling to suffer for Jesus ever or at all, has really understood the gospel for themselves. I think about the... Um, you ever encountered those guys on the street who are called the charity muggers? Who, um, they, they jump at you with clipboards, and they're all extroverts as well, which is one thing I never quite understood. I'm kind of avoiding eye contact and ducking away from them as they go past me, and they're beaming and laughing and smiling, and I'm like giving them every signal that I'm called. And these guys are, they just totally, I'm flinching in their desire to share with you uh, what they, the, the good news of the charity that they're, they're going to share with you. My point actually is this, that one of the things, when I've had conversations with these guys once or twice in the past, I always like to ask them whether they're in fact giving to the charity themselves. And it's not because I'm mean. I might be mean. It could be that. <laughs> it's not because I'm, I'm trying to catch them out. It's just this, that you know, when somebody's so passionately sharing with you something and yet they're not willing to, to give to it themselves, it calls into question whether what they're, they're talking to you about is genuine, doesn't it? And really I think that's the heart of what the Christian's experience of suffering is about. It's the cost you pay that marks the genuineness of your faith. So that's the mandate, friends. It calls us to unity, to bravery, and to the experience of adversity or to suffering for the sake of the gospel. This is what it means to live in the city that we're in, engaged with it as citizens of heaven. This is what it looks like to behave as worthy citizens of heaven. But here's the challenge. Why is it so flipping hard? <laughs> Why is it hard to be on mission for Jesus? You know, you have in mind the picture of the kind of church that Paul's describing, don't you? Where the harmony is sweet and people live and enjoy real community in, their in, 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 in one another's lives in a deep sense. Where there is this, this boldness and courageous, where every member is like Jeremy and shares their faith in this totally fearless way. <laughs> Are you shaking your head because you're not fearless? Because <laughs> you just can't stand the idea of us all being like you. It would be awesome, wouldn't it? 
where everyone just owns their faith in that public way. And where, you know, people suffer, but they, they suffer with, as like marks of, genuinely, we come into church like sharing the medals of what we earned this week because we were able to suffer for the faith. That's the picture that Paul's painting. That like him, willing to wear his suffering in public. I'm in prison, but I'm in prison for the gospel and it's serving to advance the gospel. The church of Jesus Christ, we want it to be like that. In the picture that we're painting in our heads, that's what it looks like. And yet the reality is, the day-to-day is that it's, it's really hard, isn't it? Instead of unity, you say, I actually find sometimes more in common with people outside the church. Not just on a friendship level, or just in terms of who I get along with or enjoy time with, but also in terms of common purposes or common goals or common mission together. To combat poverty or to try and combat ecological changes or to, to work in politics or to just change your office or to whatever it is that you're interested in or to drink better coffee, all these kinds of things we find common purpose with. And he said, you find, I, I find that's true of me. I find more purpose, common purpose with people outside the church than in. You think, also, I'm not a particularly brave person. By nature, I'm quite timid. And I, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you call me to courage, I don't feel brave. I just want to be liked. I want to be accepted. I want to be you know, part of the world and, and enjoy friendships and not feel like my faith is getting in the way of that. And you know, suffering, well, maybe one day, but right now I just want to get my head down and work hard. I need to progress. I need to have a friendship group. I need to work my way up through the ladder at work. I can't be putting my faith out on display because not only might I get fired, but I'll just also be held back. You say, well, one day, one day I'll I'll suffer for the gospel when I have a platform, when I have a voice, or when I have opportunity to influence others. But for now, I'll just just keep quiet. This is how we feel, isn't it? Why are we like this, friends? You know, when in view of the great truths we've been singing about today, of Christ, the cross, and the resurrection, it is puzzling, isn't it, how timid we can be or how we can retreat from the greatness of the gospel and fall short of what Paul's calling us to here. And I think that the answer has a lot to do with the two ways that you can love the world. That there's a bad way and a good way and the Bible talks quite candidly about this. That we can love the world in a way that is is bad in the sense that it's marked by attraction to the world, a desire to, to be accepted in the world, and a desire to take from the world everything you can get out of the world for now. And then the good way to love the world, which is marked by compassion. And instead of a, the need for acceptance, there's no need for acceptance because your life is being lived outwards. And instead of feeling like you have to take from the world, your life is oriented as, what, as giving toward the world. It's, I think it's similar to the way that you can treat individuals, really. I was reading a story, um, I think it was this week, of a guy who provocatively, called Josh Stoneman, he provocatively titled this blog, My Date with a Prostitute. And he, he told the story of how he was on holiday in Malaysia. And uh, as he sat down on a public bench... A girl came up to him and sat next to him, and uh, it was obvious that she worked in the sex industry from the way she was dressed and the way she carried herself and the way she was engaging with him. And he is a believer. He loves Jesus. And so he, he turned to her and he said to her, I'm not a customer, uh, 
I'm a friend. And he began to converse with this girl and ask her a little bit about her life in a way that I found really quite striking and provocative. He offered to buy her lunch. And you know, when you eat lunch in Malaysia, you eat in the open air and you go out and everyone can see you. And there he was, quite obviously, a white man with, an, with a prostitute having lunch together and bearing the looks of people all around him as he's wanting to give this woman a sense of the compassion of Jesus Christ and not use her in the way that she'd been used many times before. He asked her if anyone's ever taken her out to eat before. And she said no. He asked her why, why she was doing this. And she said, well, she's from a farming family, but when it's in the low season and they need to get by, she travels into the city to sell herself in this way. And he bought more food for her, gave food for her to take away, to give to her sister, and then took her to the market because the one thing she liked doing was shopping and he bought her a whole lot of clothes. And then at the end of the day, he was able to share the gospel with her and, importantly, say goodbye to her. And he wrote this. He says, I know that this woman isn't just a prostitute. She's an heir. I know this precious woman is a princess and the king of kings died for her. I know she's worth more than $20 for four hours and that she is treasured beyond belief. I know she is valued and loved to an extent I will only fully comprehend in heaven. And he went on and said, I saw her walk away happy to find her sister with new clothes in one hand and a meal in the other. I realize this is what Jesus does for us. He sees us in a way that no one else may. I think for me that's a picture of the different ways that we as Christians can love the world that we're in. There's love that takes and there's love that gives. There's love that is lust and there's love that is compassion. There's love that is about the need in me and there's love that's about the need in you and the need out there. There's love that is about now and, and finding gratification now. And There's love that's about the future and the greater purposes of God and his greater good that he promises to, to mankind. This is a picture of the battle that underlies our hearts that either allows us to be on mission with Jesus, loving him the way he loves the city, or engaging with the city in a way that is really for our own gratification. Let me read to you some verses that just depict for us these two kinds of love. Here's the bad kind in 1 John 2. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. He said, there's a kind of love, friends, which is marked by desire. Desire for acceptance, desire to be, you know, he says it there, the pride of life the desire to fulfill yourself with all the pleasures of the city around you and the world that you're in. And then the same author, John, talks to us about a different kind of love in this famous verse in John 3.16 when, when it's, the orientation is completely the other way around. He says, for God so loved the world. It's the same word, by the way, love and love. There's no distinction here. But the direction is so profoundly different, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In that we have a picture, just like Josh Stoneman sitting down with that 
girl in Malaysia. We have Jesus, who instead of coming to be the one who would use us and use the world and in a sense exploit the world, rather came to give himself for the world in selfless, compassionate love for, the, for, the, for this world that we're in. And what brings me to this last point, the solution. Friend, how can we walk out of here different? We know what it is we're called to. And we know what it looks like also, don't we? And I think the only answer we can ever come back to is, is, is Jesus. He stepped into the brothel, didn't he, when he came, came down for us. He stepped into the brothel of this world. And even though some people thought he was just another punter, just to get what he could out of this world. And even though that's exactly how Satan tempted him. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? He was tempted with greatness. He was tempted with the worship of all peoples. Tempted with gratification there and then. You can have what you want from this world here and now if you will just listen to my temptations. He was tempted to lust, in other words. Jesus, the only one with a pure heart, with pure eyes and a pure mind, came into the world with compassionate love and came to give himself for us instead of to take. Which means that in light of the things that Paul's been calling us to, He cared about unity because he stood side by side with us when he went to the cross. He died in your place. He demonstrated bravery because there he was sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, but overcoming fear to face the cross for you and me. And he endured the worst kinds of adversity and suffering, being tortured for us, being broken for us, pouring out his blood for us. And so, friends... When Paul began this section, he says, Only let your manner of life or your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. You've got to understand that he is not saying to you, If you think you want to be a Christian, then you need to make yourself worthy. Eventually you'll reach the, attain the level of worthiness of the gospel, and then you'll be able to wear the name, the badge Christian. He's saying it's exactly the other way around. In view of Jesus... The compassionate one, the selfless one, the one who poured out his life for us and was not willing to short circuit that by indulging in lust and temptations that would deliver him the immediate gratification of power now, sucking out of the world what he could get, but rather giving himself to the world in view of the gospel of the one who was crucified for us and then rose from the dead, triumphant over the grave, to lead us in, a, in triumph through death and into eternity, in view of all these things, what does a life that's worthy of the gospel look like? What would it look like if you walked out of here and the controlling reality of your life is the reality of Jesus crucified and risen from the dead? And how would you engage with this city? We can't withdraw from the city, can we? We can't in light of this gospel. Because the Christian faith is not a religion of escapism. And even though you think it from the way many Christians live and act, how we retreat into the same bubbles of security and comforts, 
that many people who are not Christians retreat into. I think Christians cannot withdraw. We have to be here. This is why we have to be in a city like this, in the heart of darkness, that we can bring the light. But neither can we assimilate. Because Christ has bought us with his own blood and he owns us and he loves us and he's called us to live our lives radically for him and for the gospel. What does it mean? A few closing words. I think it means that you you have to first of all know, friends, that you are in the heart of a war. The whole language here that is Paul reminding people that this is a spiritual war that you're in. It's why he talks about standing firm like a soldier, striving side by side, not frightened. He talks about opponents. He talks about destruction, salvation. He talks about a conflict that you saw I had and that you hear that I still have. All the language that Paul's bringing to to bear here is the language of you being in the middle of a raging war, a spiritual war. A lot of Christians forget this and go to sleep spiritually because you drift with the currents And Paul says you must never stop fighting. So there's one thing. You've got to know there's a war. But if we take the analogy of war a bit further, it means you cannot be in no man's land. Do you know where that expression comes from? It was from the trench warfare of World War I. When warfare began to change because no longer did men march towards each other in fields with bayonets and rifles and then just kill each other in the middle of a field. Suddenly with the the onset of new weapons and the machine guns and long-range rifles, they found that they were safer if we just dug trenches. But then what happened was total immovability for years. And men occasionally peeking their heads over the top and getting shot and then retreating back into their trenches. And so the land in between, the German line and the Allied line, was called no man's land. Because anyone who steps up there doesn't belong to them. It's up for grabs. It's no man's land. A waste of mud and barbed wire and misery. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are kind of living in that place of no man's land where you're not really sure which side you're on. It's the most dangerous place to be in, actually, in terms of spiritual, your spiritual destiny and what God wants from you. It's the one place where you can get picked off. And so, finally, friends, If we take this analogy that Paul's calling us to the battle here, we've got to remember that Jesus is our commanding officer. What he brings through for them is that we do this for the sake of Christ. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It means that there's a call here, friends, to repent of any lack of allegiance to Jesus. And bring your life back into submission to him that you might be useful for the mission that he's about in this world. Maybe you're not a Christian and a lot of what I'm saying may have puzzled you a little bit. Maybe attracts you and repels you all at the same time. But friend, I would love to speak with you if you think to yourself, I know that there's good news in this faith and that to be on mission with Jesus would be a better way to live. I'd love to speak with you and pray with you at the end if that's what you want. For those of us who know and love Jesus, this is a summons. It's a summons that your life can count. It's a summons for what it means to engage with the mission of Jesus. To be united with his people. To be courageous in standing for your faith. And to endure suffering when and if it's necessary. That you can make Christ famous in the world. If there's any part of your heart that resonates with that desire, 
Can we just bow our heads and pray together now? Lord Jesus, we want to come back to you and acknowledge that you are worthy first and foremost. You're the worthy one who died for us. You're the worthy one who is risen. And you're the worthy one who is now seated on your throne. That you're calling all people to come to you in repentance and to love you and to believe in you and to experience life in you. But Lord, this message, this gospel also brings us to a point where we have to acknowledge that there is a certain kind of life that must flow from these truths. It can't be a life where I want to take from the world. It has to be a life that's lived to give to this world. And I pray, Father God, that at the deepest level, you'll begin to rewire our hearts in such a way that we would no longer think about our our lives in terms of what we can get from life, but rather in terms of what we can give and how we can live in service of our Savior. And I pray you birth within us hearts of compassion for the city we're in, And the willingness, Lord, to sacrifice all kinds of things that we might make Jesus famous in this this city. I pray you'd slay us so that you can be made famous. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to decrease so that you can increase. And that this will be reflected in every decision we make in life, Lord. The willingness to be public with our faith. A willingness to own our faith. And to make Jesus known. We love you Lord. We want to live for you. Change us we pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen.